All right, welcome to the show, everybody. This is Sean Weiss. I am the compliance guy. Today, we're going to be talking about standing your ground with payers. You know, over the course of my career, I've engaged in thousands of appeals and hundreds of civil and federal cases. And it's always interesting when you start to dive into the way that not only prosecutors, but also payers opt to look at different laws and guidelines. And we're going to talk about guidelines, right, in just a little while, because, you know, I always hear people talk to me about the fact that, Sean, you know, this is what the guidelines say. Well, that's great. That's a guideline. It's not a policy. It's not a law. Nothing's been promulgated. Nothing's gone through a formal rulemaking process. It's a guideline. But what's really interesting to me is when we start talking about ex post facto laws or ex post facto guidelines. What do I mean by that? Well, obviously, ex post facto means after the fact or retrospectively. Both federal and state governments are prohibited from enacting ex post facto laws in the court actually applies the same analysis whether the law in question is a federal or state enactment. It's important to keep in mind that when these prohibitions were adopted as part of the original Constitution, many persons understood the term ex post facto law to, quote, embrace all retrospective laws or laws governing or controlling past transactions, whether of a civil or criminal nature. So every law that makes criminal an act that was innocent when done or that inflicts a greater punishment than the law annexed to the crime when committed is what is considered an ex post facto law within the prohibition of the Constitution. The same thing applies with insurance companies. So if you were to render a service today and the guidelines either were absent any definitive guidance or the guidelines gave a certain standard that they wanted you to follow from a frequency of performance to the diagnosis required to support the medical necessity to any other type of information. And then you were audited a year from now. But the coverage determinations had actually changed. And they went back to audit you based on those new guidelines. Your argument is that those would be ex post facto guidelines. Had a case not too long ago up in New York with a payer whereby they actually had a specific policy in place. They went back, audited this dermatologist, told the doctor that he owed $1.7 million, but failed to recognize the fact that at the time that the doctor rendered the services, they were actually rendered in accordance with their own medical coverage determination. So it became a very difficult battle for the insurance company. It became an uphill battle, so to say, and it wound up resulting in the payer having to walk away from this audit. Now, it doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen. So the purpose of this podcast today is to talk about what you can do to stand your ground with payers. So there are three categories of ex post facto laws. Those which punish as a crime an act previously committed, which was innocent when done. Second, which make more burdensome the punishment for a crime after its commission. Or third, 
Those which deprive one charged with crime of any defense available according to law at the time when the act was committed. Now, this takes me to the special investigative units, the contractors, and the Medicare administrative contractors. It's important to keep in mind that all of them are bound by contractual obligations and others are bound more by statute, regulations, acts, and laws. Here's the bottom line. You have to hold them accountable and not allow them to paint with broad brushstrokes or to create a narrative that fits a suspected violation. You have to know your rights and what each of them are bound to because it goes a long way to ensuring a level playing field. So some of the things that I want to talk about through the rest of this podcast today are contracts, your governing documents and policies for each payer you participate with. I want to talk about the medical record review sections of the program integrity manual for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and how that ties directly into medical necessity, clinical judgment, the treating physician rule, and really Section 1870 of the Act, which deals with overpaid provider that's not liable because it was actually without fault. So the first thing that I always ask my clients for are their contracts, any of their governing documents or policies, right? Because these are crucial to any appeal or any dispute with a payer. I always try to help providers and their leadership teams understand what's in your participation agreement, because what's in writing is what you can hold them to and what they're going to hold you to. It's unbelievable how many times I've had clients provide me with a copy of their payer contract and I look at it and the date on there is from 2010 or somewhere in that neighborhood. And I asked them if they've had an updated version of it or if they have any amendments or addendums that have been added to it. And they often say to me, I didn't even read the first one. I don't know. I mean, that's just absolute insanity. How can you stand your ground with a payer? How can you argue what you should have been paid for or the fact that you weren't paid correctly if you don't know what's inside your contracts or your participation agreements? I think it's also critical to understand when your agreements actually expire, because if they're automatic rollovers, there's typically a term in there that says 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, 120 days prior to the rollover date, you have a right to engage them for renegotiations. And I have a lot of people that say, hey, Sean, you know, they're not going to renegotiate with me. Of course they are. You just have to understand the appropriate way to go about it. The other thing that's so important to understand is what rate are you being reimbursed under? Are you being reimbursed at a percentage of RBRVS? If so, is it below? Is it at? Is it over? And how do they define medical necessity? Because we all know with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, they've actually done a lousy job, right? Because medical necessity is a subjective term. What, be, what might be 
straightforward or low complexity to one provider to another provider could wind up being moderate or high complexity. But how do they actually look at medical necessity? How do they gauge it? Especially considering the fact that in 2021, January of this year, all the guidelines for Office-based evaluation and management services, 99202 through 99215, changed. They did away with the bean counting process, and they put more emphasis onto the medical decision-making and, and or time in conjunction with medical necessity. So, for me, the easiest way to determine medical necessity is to go out and pull the policies by payer for your top services that you bill to each of them. And then to figure out in the absence of a local coverage determination or a medical coverage policy, how are disputes actually handled? You know, the easiest way to argue your case with an insurance company is to understand what the actual policies of that payer are. There's no better way to build a compliance program from a policy standpoint than going out and actually pulling the coverage determinations of each of the insurance companies that you participate with. Pick your top five, your top 10, your top 15 procedures, and those are the ones that you want to grab policies for. Don't be lazy with this stuff. There's no reason. The internet is... A wealth of information, as long as you know what sources to use, which areas to stay away from. You know, I always tell people when you get onto a listserv, you got to be careful because if you put garbage in, you're going to get garbage out. There are some listservs that are absolutely fantastic. I utilize several listservs during the course of my business day when I'm seeking guidance or counsel from somebody out there who has more knowledge in a particular area than maybe what I have. And it's also good to be able to go out and utilize listservs and, and, and gather guidance from individuals, from a variety of individuals. Because again, it also speaks to sometimes, depending on the service, the complexity of the guidelines that are actually written or provided, and the policies, and the language within those. So use the listservs wisely. But more importantly than listservs is to know the proper resources that are available to you. I like the Program Integrity Manual for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Why? Because that's your playbook. This is your roadmap to how services are viewed, what processes the government's put in place to handle claims adjudication and processing and or disputes. But one specific area, because when we started talking about medical necessity that I, I really like to focus on is 3.3.1.1, which is the medical record review section. This was actually issued in July of 2020 and became effective a month later. 
And the section actually applies to not only the Medicare administrative contractors, but to the comprehensive error rate testing, the recovery audit contractors, the supplemental medical review contractors, as well as the unified program integrity contractors. And it specifically speaks to something called clinical review judgment. And the way that they lay it out is basically this. It involves two steps. First is the synthesis of all submitted medical record information. So your progress notes, diagnostic findings, medications, nursing notes. They use these to create a longitudinal picture of the patient clinically. And then second, the application of this clinical picture to the review criteria is to make a reviewer determination on whether the clinical requirements in the relevant policy have actually been met. So as I said, MAC, CERT, RAC, and UPIC clinical review staff have to use clinical review judgment when making medical record determinations about a claim. But the section goes on to say, quote, Clinical review judgment does not replace poor or inadequate medical records. Clinical review judgment, by definition, is not a process that the MAC, CERT, RACs, and UPICs can use to override, supersede, or disregard a policy requirement. Why? Because unlike guidelines that are just that, guidelines, policies include laws, regulations, CMS rulings, manual instructions, MAC policy articles, which become attached to an LCD or listed in the Medicare coverage database or national coverage decisions, in addition to the local coverage determinations. See, this is why you have to rely on the proper resources in order to be able to stand your ground with the payers. When you push back with their information, as I just quoted that specific area for you, it makes it almost literally impossible for them to be able to argue it because it's their own policy. Which brings me to the credentials of a reviewer. And this is in the exact same section that we were just talking about for the medical record review, 3.3.1.1. So in this section, they actually say the MAX, MRAC, insert shall ensure that medical record reviews for the purpose of making coverage determinations are performed by licensed nurses, RNs, therapists, or physicians. Here's what it actually goes on to say. During a medical record review, nurse and physician reviewers may call upon other healthcare professionals, such as dietitians or physician specialists, for advice. However, they shall ensure... That services reviewed by other licensed healthcare professionals are within their scope of practice and that the medical review strategy supports the need for their specialized expertise in the adjudication of particular claim types, such as speech therapy, physical therapy. The RACs and the SMRCs have to follow guidance related to calling upon other healthcare professionals as outlined in their respective scope of works. And it finalizes by actually saying the certain MACs are encouraged to make coding determinations by using certified coders. But it also goes on to say that the UPICs have the discretion to make coding determinations also using certified coders. 
And on an appeal, you have a right to request access to the individuals who are actually auditing your services. There's a section in 3.3.1.1 called credential files. And here's what it says. Quote, the Max, MRAC, CERT, RACs, and UPICs shall maintain a credentials file for each reviewer, including consultants, contract staff, subcontractors, and temporary staff who performs medical record reviews. The credentials file shall contain at least a copy of the reviewer's active professional license. So what happens when you ask for this stuff? And they push back and they say, absolutely not. Well, that's when you push back and you say, absolutely. Why? Because your policy manual, your program integrity manual in this specific section says that you're required to maintain this information. Second, you're a publicly funded governmental organization, which means under the Freedom of Information Act, under a FOIA request, if you have to go that route, you have a right to gain access to that information. And hopefully they don't force you to go that route. But again, understanding all avenues that are available to you during a dispute with a payer is what levels that playing field and what ensures that when you stand your ground with the payers, you're doing so with your feet firmly planted on the ground and you now become an immovable force. So when we're talking about appeals, I want to talk about risk, right? Because when you have both clinical and non-clinical reviewed, deployed by the payer, you have to be able to determine how they interpreted risk. And for me, I like the American Medical Association's definition of risk. Quote, Definitions of risk are based upon the usual behavior and thought process of a physician or other qualified healthcare professional in the same specialty. Folks, let me pause here for a minute and just say this is why we request the credentials for physician reviewers in any case. So continuing on, it says, for the purposes of medical decision making, the level of risk is based upon consequences of the problem or problems that are addressed at the encounter when appropriately treated. Risk also includes medical decision-making that's related to the need to initiate or forego further testing, treatment, and or hospitalization, end quote. What a great argument to put into your audit appeal letters. Because... The AMA's definition of risk speaks specifically to medical necessity, right? Because medical necessity means healthcare services that a physician exercising prudent clinical judgment would provide to a patient for the purpose of preventing, evaluating, diagnosing, or treating an illness, injury, disease, or its symptoms. And there's three things that we actually take a look at. First, that the services are in accordance with generally accepted standards of medical practice. So let me stop there for just a moment, right? Because for the purposes 
of this conversation today. Generally accepted standards of medical practice means standards that are based on credible scientific evidence published in peer-reviewed medical literature, generally recognized by the relevant medical community or otherwise consistent with the standards set forth in policy issues involving clinical judgment. So when I'm writing a response letter to an audit, and I start my letter off by saying, all services in question as part of this audit were performed in accordance with generally accepted standards of medical practice. It makes it very hard for the insurance company to then come back and say, no way. Because our services that were rendered were done based on credible scientific evidence. So the second aspect of medical necessity is the clinically appropriate nature, right? This is in terms of type, frequency, extent, site, and duration, and are all considered effective for the patient's illness or injury or their disease. And the third is that the services are not primarily for the convenience of the patient, a physician, or another healthcare provider. And most importantly, that they are not more costly than an alternative service or sequence of services, which are at least as likely to produce equivalent therapeutic or diagnostic results as to the diagnosis or treatment of that patient's illness, injury, or disease. So when we're talking about defending medical necessity, I look at court rulings. A good one is the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which was cited in Kaminsky that defined medical necessity. And here's what it says. Unless contrary is specified, the term medical necessity must refer to what is medically necessary for a particular patient and hence entails an individual assessment rather than a general determination of what works in the ordinary case. So what they're basically saying is, hey, insurance company, I don't care what you're, what you're putting out there saying, this is what we would expect for the general population. Because if you're going to judge a service based on the merits of the medical necessity, that it has to refer to what is medically, necess medically necessary for a particular patient and not what works in a general determination or in an ordinary case. So we started talking about Medicare's view of medical necessity, right? And I told you that they didn't do a great job or they don't do a great job of defining medical necessity. Because in the program manual, medical necessity is actually defined under Title 18 of the Social Security Act. It's actually Section 1862A1A. And here's what it says, quote, Notwithstanding any other provision of this title, no payment may be made under Part A or B for any expense incurred for items or services which, except for items and services described in the seceding paragraph, are not reasonable and necessary for the diagnosis or treatment of illness or injury or to improve the functioning of a malformed body member, end quote. 
makes perfect sense, right? It's about as clear as mud. You know, what I just provided for you is a legal doctrine by which evidence-based clinical standards are used to determine whether a treatment or procedure is reasonable, necessary, and or appropriate. So how do we defend medical necessity? Well, the question becomes, does documentation within the medical record exist or likely exist, but the issue is lacking documentation in the medical record? For me, I think that's the biggest problem. I don't think it's a lack of medical necessity. I think the problem that providers face is they become so dependent on the point-and-click system within their electronic medical records that they wind up producing 27 pages of crap. And they think that the more robust a document is for a patient encounter, that it's going to support that higher level of service, when the truth is it's just the opposite. I mean, if you have a problem list that's 27 problems deep and they're problems that existed back in 1996, your records are trash. They're garbage. Folks, physicians have a responsibility to provide sufficient documentation that paints a clear picture of each and every single encounter. So you have to be able to determine whether the procedures in question are truly clinically necessary or if the issue is documentation related and whether it's critical to the defense of any investigation. You got to make sure that all relevant medical records have been retrieved and reviewed. Don't just package them up in a vacuum and send them off without understanding what you've actually provided because you may have provided too much. Or you may have provided the wrong thing. Or you may not have provided enough. So make sure you look for your office notes, hospital notes, nursing home notes, rehab notes, wherever your providers are rendering care to your patients. And then you go back to what we started talking about earlier. Do LCDs or NCDs exist to provide documentation requirements? But I think the most important thing is if the allegations are that the documentation is inaccurate. Have we generated clinical rebuttals to further clarify the need for services and state the physician's opinion clearly? Look, there's no doubt that there's a clear and binding medical necessity standard. The Medicare statute requires that any rule requirement or other statement of policy other than a material coverage determination or decision that establishes or changes a substantive legal standard must be promulgated by regulation. This is actually spelled out in 42 USC subsection 1395HH. So the question becomes, has CMS promulgated a standard for determining whether a service is reasonable and necessary? I don't think so. And I don't think there's an attorney out there that thinks CMS has done a really good job in promulgating any standard with respect to determining whether a service is reasonable and necessary. That's why courts from time to time give deference to the determination of the treating physician. A great case is the United States v. Prabhu. 44 uh, or 442F. And here's what it says. 
Clarity of medical necessity issues affect whether a claim is false and whether the requisite knowledge exists, right? Now, some people are going to say, Sean, wait a minute, hold on. I've heard that the treating physician rule was removed from the Social Security regulations. It was, and that became effective in March of 2017. But we still utilize the treating physician rule in Medicare and commercial insurance cases, right? Because it's important to keep in mind that claims are not false under the False Claims Act when reasonable persons can disagree regarding whether the service was properly billed to the government. I mean, this is clearly stated in the, in the opinion of Prabhu. Also, a defendant does not knowingly submit a false claim when his or her conduct is consistent with a reasonable interpretation of ambiguous regulatory guidance, again, outlined in Prabhu. Look, one needs to only go back to the 1980s to a Supreme Court justice in New York who actually said Medicare and Medicaid is an aggravated assault on the English language. I mean, these are judges that are saying this stuff. So I want to talk a little bit about the treating physician rule, right? So under the treating physician rule, here's what it says, right? The first section of the Medicare statute is the prohibition. Quote, nothing in this title shall be construed to authorize any federal officer or employee to exercise any supervision or control over the practice of medicine or the manner in which medical services are provided, end quote. So from this, one could conclude that the beneficiary's physician should decide what services are medically necessary for the beneficiary and a substantial line of authority in the Social Security Disabilities Benefit Area holds that the treating physician's opinion is entitled to special weight and is binding upon the secretary when not contradicted by substantial evidence. So some courts have applied the rationale of the treating physician rule in Medicare cases. And believe it or not, they have actually rejected the secretary's assertion that the treating physician rule should not be applied to Medicare determinations. As a matter of fact, in Holland v. Sullivan, the court actually concluded, though the considerations bearing on the weight to be accorded a treating physician's opinion are not necessarily identical in the disability and Medicare context. And as such, we would expect the secretary to place significant reliance on the informed opinion of a treating physician and either to apply the treating physician rule with its component of, quote, unquote, some extra weight to be accorded that opinion. But here's the most important part. Even if contradicted by substantial evidence or to supply a reasoned basis in conformity with statutory purposes for declining to do so. Now, there's something that I like to talk about when it comes to insurance companies and their desire to claw back. And it's something called judgment error. That's actually what it's referred to. And if the overpayment is the result of the insurance company changing its judgment after paying the claim, determining that the service, as an example, was outside the scope of the insured's covered plan, then providers may not be obligated to reimburse the insurance company. Folks, many state courts have decided insurance companies are not entitled to reimbursement 
if the provider made no misrepresentation to prompt the payment and had no reason to suspect the payment was an error. Now, keep in mind, providers cannot keep any payment that would be considered beyond the scope of service. So, what drives a payer during an audit to make a determination as to whether they're going to utilize a probe sample, a convenient sample, a non-statistically valid sample, or a statistical sample? Well, your commercial payers, again, you're going to have to go back to your contracts and to your um, governance documents. But for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, it's actually pretty straightforward. It's section 8.4.2, that entire section. And what I look for, especially now that I'm seeing more and more statistical samples, and it's really fascinating, I have a case that is coming up this week on Friday in Kentucky that I'm going to be testifying on. And I found out last week from the Defense Council that the government actually abandoned their statistical sample and wound up cherry-picking 30 or 40 dates of service. And that's what they made their determination for extrapolation on. Well, folks, that's, that's absolutely absurd. Because there's crystal clear guidance from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services on when statistical sampling can use, can be used. And it says, actually, believe it or not, under the new guidance, a contractor shall use statistical sampling when it has been determined that a sustained or high level of payment error exists. But listen to this, because this is not what's happening. The use of statistical sampling may be used after documented educational intervention has failed to correct the payment error. And they created what's called a three-tiered structure. So first, extrapolation shall be used when a sustained or high level of payment error exists. And we'll get to that in just a minute. Extrapolation may be used after documented educational intervention. Again, if you've gone through a targeted, probed, and educate program, the TPE, and you have failed one, two, or three levels, then the use of extrapolation is absolutely appropriate. And look, I'm a proponent for extrapolation. I think it works. Not in every case. But it has to follow that extrapolation should not be used if there is not a sustained or high level of payment error or evidence that documented educational intervention has failed. So the question becomes, what is a sustained or high level of payment error? Well, the program integrity manual now specifies this can be when the sample review error rate is, quote, greater than or equal to 50%, end quote. This is a significant difference from error rates Medicare auditors have previously used to justify a high error rate and, I believe, can provide some relief as to the punitive effects 
of an extrapolation. However, the 50% or greater test is not the only method CMS permits its contractors to, to determine a sustained or high level of payment error. Remember, as I said just a second ago, the TPE program, right? It differs significantly. I've seen anywhere from a 15 to 20% error rate is what they consider to be a high error rate to take you to the next level. And remember that the program integrity manual also states that the contractor may look to the provider's history of noncompliance for the same or similar billing issues or a historical pattern of noncompliant billing practices. So when we're talking about the Medicare appeals process, right, because we're talking about sampling and extrapolation, a few areas that you need to focus on, right? First, you got to be able to determine whether the overpayment was inappropriate. Second, determine if you were actually paid for the claim. I can't tell you how many times we've been given access to the EOBs and we look only to find out that the payer denied the claim out of the gate to begin with. I mean, if you weren't paid for the claim, how can you refund them? I mean, folks, you got to be smart about this stuff, right? Again, current and future reimbursement risk should be determined through internal audits. If you don't have a corporate compliance program, if you've not created a culture of compliance in your organization, and you have not created an, a mechanism to perform internal audits, whether it's on a monthly, quarterly, or annually basis, you're making a grave mistake. And there's no way you could tell somebody that you have a compliance program or that you've established a culture of compliance if you're not conducting internal audits. But what do you do if you find an, you know, an error during one of your audits? Well, if errors are identified, you got to take corrective action. You got to create a corrective action plan. You've got to follow the 60-day rule to make a voluntary refund. Again, once you have identified an error and you have confirmed an overpayment, you have 60 days after that investigation to be able to make a refund. And don't just look at it and go, well, we only have 60 days to make a refund. No, that's not how it works. You have up to six months to conduct a bona fide investigation once you have identified an overpayment. You have six months to confirm that problem. And then once you confirm it, you have 60 days under the statute in which to make your refund. All right. A few of the pitfalls that I will put out there to you that you should avoid. Don't jump to the conclusion your issue or issues require a self-disclosure protocol. An SDP through the Office of Inspector General should always be the very, very last thing that a practice does. Unless you believe or you have confirmation that a scheme or an artifice has been created against the federal payer programs. Because issues can oftentimes be remedied through a corrected claims process. I also tell my clients, filing an appeal based on principle rather than facts and potential outcomes is absolutely crazy. 
engaging the appeals process when it's more intelligent and cheaper to make a refund and avoid additional costs is always the way to go. Make sure you understand your filing dates between levels one, two, three, and if you have to go to level four, right? Your reconsideration, your redetermination, your administrative law judge hearings, and your departmental appeal board reviews or what they call a Medicare uh, appeal council review. Avoid providing limited analysis and, and, and honestly, avoid failing to fix identified problems going forward. You know, I tell people all the time, a mistake should happen only one time before you actually correct it. But what happens if you did everything correctly, but the insurance company comes back and says, we still want a refund? Well, Section 1870B of the Act, you could actually find this, believe it or not, in the Medicare Integrity or Medicare Intermediary Manual Part 3 under the Claims Processing. This is in Transmittal 1829. This is the provider without fault, right? The section is actually overpaid provider not liable because it was without fault. Again, this is Section 1870B of the Act, and here's what it says. If a provider was without fault with respect to an overpayment it received or is deemed without fault in the absence of evidence to the contrary because the overpayment was discovered subsequent to the third calendar year after the payment, it is not liable for the overpayment. Therefore, it is not responsible for refunding the amount Involved. The provision forms the basis for policies and instructions, and it gives you a whole bunch of different subsections, right? 3708, 3708.1, 3708.2, 3708.4, and 3708.6. The section finalizes with this, and, 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 and this is where you actually find it. It's 42 U.S.C. 1395 G.G. Section 1870. And here's what paragraph C says. There shall be no adjustment as provided in subsection B, nor shall there be recovery. In any case, where the incorrect payment has been made, including payments under Section 1814E with respect to an individual who is without fault or where the adjustment or recovery would be made by decreasing payments to which another person who is without fault is entitled as provided in subsection B4. Y'all still with me? If such adjustment or recovery would defeat the purpose of Title II or Title 18 or would be against equity and good conscience. Adjustment or recovery of an incorrect payment or only such part of an incorrect payment as the Secretary determines to be inconsistent with the purposes of this title against an individual who is 
without fault shall be deemed to be against equity and good conscience if, and here are the two aspects, the incorrect payment was made for expenses incurred for items or services for which payment may not be made under this title by reason of the provision of paragraph 1 or 9 of section 1862A and if the secretary's determination that such payment was incorrect was made subsequent to the fifth year following the year in which notice of such payment was sent to such individual, except that the secretary may reduce such five-year period to not less than one year if he or she finds such reduction is consistent with the objectives of this title. So it does lend some latitude to the Secretary of Health and Human Services. But at the end of the day, this provision of the Social Security Act exists to protect you, the providers. All right. So this takes us to the end of our podcast. I hope you've enjoyed our 45 minutes together. Again, I am Sean Weiss, the compliance guy, and this was Stand Your Ground with Payers.